Well, Merry Christmas. You know, I think it's hilarious about that last song that you all obviously liked is that if, you know, it's kind of a big band era mentality that Troy put on today and, you know, first service loved it. I mean, like they thought we were ready for the second coming with that music. And, <laughs> and I said something to them, I, I, Bill, you'll love this. I, I, I said to them, I said, you know, it's hilarious. It, it, back in the 40s, if you played that music in church, whoa, like your grandparents were not thinking that was godly music back then. And, and, and they almost forbade that stuff to, to be uh, played in church. But, but now, you know, a few generations later, we listen to it and we go, yeah, the good old days, that's awesome music. And, and, I, and I just think to myself, I, and I kind of concur some people in the first service, I said, if you hate the stuff today, don't worry, your grandkids will love it about two or three generations from now. It just takes that long to get used to it. Isn't that true, Tim? And so I, I just smile. I, I think God just laughs at all of that and, and says to you and I, chill out. And just breathe easy and, and, and know that I love you and that uh, he's just glad you're in church. I am too. Uh, tomorrow, I need all of you to pray for us tomorrow. Uh, it's a huge day for Scottsdale Bible Church. Only two times a year that we will have over 10,000 people uh, come to worship services. We have eight worship services tomorrow in the venue at the Cactus Campus here, obviously in this room. And it's a huge day for us. I never, I hardly, I don't think I've ever traveled at Christmas or Easter because as a pastor, I get a, a chance to speak to people who are only gonna darken the doors of our church once or twice a year. And we want to give them Jesus. And so as, as you come tomorrow night or even maybe if, wherever you are, pray for your church and pray for me and our team that God would fill us with his spirit, give us clarity as we talk to people about his son and uh, pray that there might be great fruit that comes from that day. I, it was really hilarious. I think it was about oh, probably three years ago when I'd been in, in, in Scottsdale here for a couple of years, I was up at the ice cream shop in North Scottsdale and the gal behind the counter said to me, oh, you're my pastor, I go to your church. And she was a young gal, I said, really? I said, that's wonderful. I said, what service do you come to? And she said, Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it was great, I was like, and I love that because I said to her, I said, now you do know we have services between Christmas and Easter, right? I said, and you are welcome to come to any of those. And so that's the kind of person we're trying to reach. And so pray that God would use us to, to reach them and, and to share his love and his grace with them, all right? We're going to turn to his word now. I've got two Christmas messages. I did one last week, one we're going to do today. And I think you're going to like where we go in his word today. So why don't you bow with me and pray? Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace and all that you are to us as we're learning in this season once again in Christ. All you are to us in Christ. And I pray, Father, as we open your word now after having been set up uh, through worship here and the venue people there and Cactus at their campus, I pray, God, as we all open your word now that you might be blessed, you might be glorified, and, and Lord, might you deepen us as we ask some, some questions a lot of people ask and just give very clear answers to them from your word. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. So we only had two really Sundays to focus on Christmas because we were doing so much with our last series that brought us up to the Christmas season. And so I've been asking two questions. I only have two questions for you this holiday season. And the first one I asked last Sunday, and it was the question, why Jesus? 
Why Jesus? Why do Christians celebrate Christmas at all and take a holiday to focus on Jesus? And we looked at Hebrews 1, and you can get the message if you weren't here on, our, on the internet, and the, the answer is simply because of who he is and what he has done. He's God, and he came to save us from our sins, to bring us into a right relationship with God. And we spelled that out clearly last week, and we saw why Jesus is the centerpiece of our faith. Uh, but we're not done asking Christmas questions yet because once you ask and answer the why Jesus question, I believe you need to ask and answer a follow-up question that is equally, if not more important, and it's a similar question but different, and that is why follow Jesus, right? Why follow Jesus? In other words, Jesus is not just interested in us having right doctrine, right theology, and saying you're the son of God and you died on a cross for my sins, which almost every American tends to know that, even those from unchurched backgrounds that just went to Sunday school a couple times as a kid. But the question really becomes, why would we have to follow Jesus? Why does he demand our all? And if you don't think he does, look at Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. As I read this, kind of dial in as to how Jesus calls us to follow him and even the kind of following he's looking for, because this is serious stuff. Luke 9, verses 23 and 24, Jesus is speaking. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so I don't know about you, but when I read words like that, and I've read that passage hundreds of times, but as I read it again this week, it hit me. That, that's a real serious take that Jesus has on following, right? I mean, you and I use that word follow in all different kinds of ways today, but when Jesus talks about following and specifically following himself, it is serious business. I mean, look at that passage again. He says, you need to come after me and deny yourself and take up your cross and follow. And then after that, he says, if you're going to try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you're going to save it. I mean, Jesus puts this idea of following in a totally different light than even how some of us use that word today. A couple of years ago, a pastor out east named Kyle Eidelman came out with a book that kind of swept the nation called Not a Fan not a fan. And in this book, he distinguished between being a fan of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus. It's a very interesting distinction. And he noted that fans tend to go home in the rain. Fans tend to ask, what have you done for me lately? Fans tend to have a cafeteria approach to those that they are fans of. They kind of take this and take that, but then they leave that and leave this. Whereas followers tend to be the opposite. Followers stick it out when it rains. Followers say, what can I do for you? And followers tend to be in it for the whole deal. So you get the difference. A fan is a fair weather friend. A follower endures all storms. A fan is in it for what they can get. A follower is in it for what they can give. A fan will pick and choose what they want. A follower is in it for the whole game. And obviously Jesus is not interested in fans. That was the point of this guy's book. Many Americans tend to be fans of Jesus, where he says Jesus calls us to be followers of himself. Wholehearted devotion versus half-hearted belief. That's what Jesus is after in us. So again, why? I want you to wrestle with that today. Why does he call us to follow him? 
And when you get right down to it, the answer really boils down to one word that has to do at least from our end, and it's going to be a surprising word to you, and it's the word identity. Identity. In other words, I'm convinced that when you add up the scriptural evidence, the reason that God is so concerned that you and I become wholehearted followers of Jesus is because he knows that our identity is at stake. Our identity is those made in his image and those who are trying to become all that we can be in this world hinges on whether or not we're willing to follow Jesus or not. Or to put it differently, our identity can only become forged in the way that our souls long for it to be forged, in the way that God wants it to be forged, when you and I take up our cross and follow Christ. How can that be? I want to show you what I mean. In our time remaining this morning, I want to show you three ways that the Bible declares that following Jesus can literally forge, alter, change, grow, and even forever renew your identity. And I'm going to introduce you kind of three words that you've heard before, I guess as you have, but we're going to attach them to the word identity, link them to Jesus, and I think you'll see what I mean. So first, notice with me that following Jesus offers you a creation identity, a creation identity. Believe it or not, Jesus, when he walked this earth, hinted to this on a regular basis. So look at what he says in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. The context is here is that Jesus is talking about marriage. Some religious leaders had been grilling him on marriage. And in answering the question, look closely at at, at how he answers this question and what he says. Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. Look up here on the screen. It says, and he, Jesus, answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a woman shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, don't miss the subtlety of what's going on here, folks. In getting to an answer about the importance of marriage, which we're going to leave for another sermon, because that's beyond what this message is about. But in getting to an answer for that, notice that Jesus refers his audience, and by extension, you and I, back to creation. Isn't that interesting? He refers us back to creation. And he simply points out that human beings were made in the image of God, male and female. And then when marriage occurs between a male and a female, something intimate and very spiritual happens to the point that they are now one flesh. A new special identity occurs. And so simply see the contours of what Jesus is doing here. In a very real essence, he's bringing his audience back to a creation identity that God established from the beginning. And he's saying, as you listen to me, as you follow me, as you do life the way that I describe, you're going to get back to this creation identity. You're going to know what it means to be a human being made in the image of God and even your marriage is going to be radically affected. Now now hang on to that. And notice with me uh, what Revelation 4 then says about this idea of following Jesus and a creation identity. The context here is that it's in heaven. uh, The 24 elders are worshiping Jesus at the throne. And in verse 11, look what they say. Very interesting. They say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now here it is. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
So once again, in the context of worship in heaven, God brings us back to this idea of creation and says, in worshiping and following my son, you're going to develop a creation identity. It's a creation identity that God's after in us, an identity that knows and lives what it means to be a human being made in the image of Almighty God and then living accordingly. And I know how some of you think. You're thinking right now, well, big whip, Jamie, a creation identity. I mean, anybody who's made in the image of God has this, right? No, not necessarily. We're supposed to have this. God created every human being in his image to have an identity as those made in this image and live accordingly. But in this fallen world, have you experienced this yet? It is so easy to lose this creation identity that God has imbued us with. It's so easy to lose what it means to be a human being made in God's image and then act accordingly. And my point is, is that it's through following Jesus that God brings us back to a creation identity and challenges us once again to what it means to live out of our creation identity. There's a lot of ways I can show you how this is. Like I could point to our marriages. I could point to our, our jobs. I could point to the environment and how we treat creation. I mean, there's plenty of ways that we, we fail to live up to our creation identity. But I think one of the ways that, that most of us obviously see how far we or how short we fall, how short we are to this creation identity is simply in our relational base and the way we tend to treat others around us. Let's focus on that for a minute. I want us to focus on your relationships. So maybe right now think of three or four of your main relationships. Maybe your spouse, a friend, a coworker, a service provider, a kid, somebody you work with. Just think of a few relationships around you. And let's analyze your relationship base, your relational life. And let's ask ourselves, do we really have a creation identity that is driving us in our relationships? And the way you do that is simply ask yourself, honestly, right now where you sit, cactus where you sit, venue where you sit, is how do I view the people around me? What does my current identity tell me? Do I view them as valuable creations of God, complete with an image-bearing soul that is worthy of care and dignity in all circumstances? Or do I see them as projects to be completed, entities that are either going to help me get done what I need to get done or get in the way and somehow need to be removed. Eugene Peterson in his classic book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, points this out. He, he says that as a pastor, he remembers way back in the 1950s when he was sitting in his little office in Maryland and a businessman came into his office to, to talk to him about the church and where the church can go and what the church should do. And he said it was the first time he'd ever had somebody come to his, him as a pastor and refer to the people of his church as resources that needed to be harnessed. Because this businessman came in and said, you know, we got these resources and these resources and we need to move them this way and put them this way and we need to do this and put this there and then the church will do this and we can move her forward. And Peterson sat there and thought, last I looked, the Bible called them sheep that need to be shepherded individuals made in the image of God. And where is culture gone that we're now calling them resources? And boy, if that was true back in the 50s, think about how it is today. 
Jesus said in Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, people are image bearers of Almighty God. They are self-conscious. They seek meaning and purpose. They're organic beings with souls inside of them. And God says that, that you and I, if we have a creation identity at all, will see everybody this way and act accordingly. In fact, let me show you how James in the New Testament says how Christ followers need to have such a creation identity that it affects even the way we speak to people. Look at James 3, verses 9 and 10. This is convicting. He says, with it, meaning our mouth, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people, now here it is, who are made in the image or likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be. So what's James saying there? He's saying, get back to your creation identity. Start seeing people, all people, for, for who they are, as those made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect. And, and be very careful, even how you speak to those around you. And so simply put, I know this will go against the grain of some of our lives here right now today, but I think what this means is that Christians don't suffer road rage when people cut us off. Christians don't gossip about people when they are threatened. Christians don't backbite when people come at them. Christians don't choose the rich and the powerful over the poor and non-influential. I mean, those are all commands that you can find in the New Testament. And you gotta ask yourself, why does God command those things? Because he wants to rain on our relational parade? No, he commands those things because he's concerned about your creation identity. He's concerned that you have an identity that sees people in a particular way, quite frankly, in a Jesus way. Think about how Jesus treated all those around him. Isn't it awesome? Well, there's a woman caught in adultery, the woman at the well who'd been married more times than Elizabeth Taylor, or, or, or Zacchaeus when he was climbing a tree, or Matthew the tax collector, or Peter when he denied him. Think of all the relational interactions that Jesus had. Didn't he treat people with incredible dignity and respect? Even when he was challenging them, even when he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. I mean, he did so with such love and respect. I love it. Uh, my counseling professor in seminary used to say that Jesus had a hug em, slug em approach to dealing with people. He'd sort of put his arm around them and hug them and say, you know, blessed are you, Simon, for, you know, you, you've understood that I'm the Christ, the coming Messiah. And then he'd whack them with the truth. You know, you, you don't have in mind the things of man, but the, or the things of God, but the things of man. And Jesus did that with people. But he did that because he had dignity. He loved them and saw them as ones needing dignity and respect. Are you starting to see a creation identity that colors everything in our lives? First and foremost, how we treat others. But many other things as well that we don't have time to go into today. It colors your entire job, how you see the gifts and passions God has given you and how you use them. It colors your, your view of masculinity and femininity. It colors your view of marriage. It colors, colors your view of parenting. It covers, as I said earlier, how, how you view and treat this earth as one who's called to have dominion but care for this earth and many, many other Monday through Saturday avenues of life. It's core to identity. It's core to following Jesus. Why follow him? Because he wants to bring you back to this creation identity that will so honor him 
and help you. And now we've got to move on. Believe it or not, we've not even shifted out of first gear yet. There's more, much more that this identity restoring Jesus wants to do in you. So here's the second thing to know. And this might be review for some of you, but I'm going to really challenge us as a church in this. And that is that following Jesus Christ also offers you a redemption identity, a redemption identity. So it's not just bringing you back to creation that God wants in you, to how you view others around you, but even he's going to redeem your soul in Jesus and give you an identity that you carry now around in your redemption. So look at Ephesians 1.7 and you'll see what I mean. It says, in him, meaning Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, again, this is the kind of passage where, sadly, many of us will read this in our quiet time, and we'll go, okay, that means I'm saved. I'll read on. Slow down. Notice three words that, 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 that Paul uses there that are powerful and potent words when it comes to your identity. And those are the words redemption, forgiveness, and grace. Did you catch them? Redemption, forgiveness, and grace. So what Paul is saying there, what God is saying to you is that in Jesus Christ, he's going to save you from something. He's going to redeem you. He's going to give you a new lease on life. He's going to give you a reason to wake up every day. And it's not going to be your job, your 401k, your hobbies, your next vacation. No, it's going to be something much more meaningful than any of that. He's going to redeem you. And what's he going to redeem you from? Your sin something our world doesn't like to talk about, but they do it all the time. Isn't that interesting? So our world doesn't like to talk about sin. They're just really good at demonstrating it and practicing it. But Christians, who also demonstrate it, uh, get to talk about it because we own it. We own the fact that we have sin, that our sin separates us from God, that it's more insidious and deep than anything we would ever realize. But Jesus knows this. And so when he came to this earth, he died on a wooden cross, bore your sin upon himself, rose on the third day so that you now might be forgiven of your sin. And for those who follow him, they're completely forgiven of all of their sin. We'll get to that in a second here. But then notice that God says, and all of this is by my grace. You didn't do it. You couldn't earn it. You didn't work for it. Redemption, forgiveness, and grace. Add it all up. It's now your redemption identity that comes to you through following Jesus. And so on a very practical level, let's say this for what it is. For those who know and follow Jesus, he's now made you completely clean in his sight. He has wiped the slate completely clean as far as your relationship with him goes. So that's why the New Testament authors, who had very difficult lives, mind you, they were persecuted, beaten up, lost their jobs, got abandoned by close friends, their family even mocked them, all the things that you and I take for granted, they didn't have. And yet, when they wrote in the New Testament, they talked about things like freedom, joy, hope, purpose, peace, and meaning. You should think, well, how can you do that? Like your 401k is tanked. You're not going to have a really good Christmas with your family this year because they don't want to be with you. And your friends are even abandoning you. Your emotions are depressed. You're in jail. How are you talking about freedom, joy, hope, purpose, and meaning? Well, it's easy. They would say, because I have a, a redemption identity that's deeper than anything else in me. I've gone from darkness to light. I've gone from death to life. I've gone from having no hope to hope eternal. And the point is, when you get in touch with this, folks, 
This now gives you something to live for. And it affects everything Monday through Saturday in your life. As I have said, your soul literally goes from black and white to technicolor. And yet the church today, I don't think always lives out of their redemption identity. I really don't. I think so many of us are mired in all the tangible, earthy, fleshly, day-to-day things of our lives. And we come to church, we go, yeah, 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 I'm saved, and Jesus died for me, and all this other stuff. And then we, we go out, and we worry, and we spend too much. And we get in fights with those around us, and we get depressed, and all these things. And God says, yeah, but, but you're carrying around you a redemption identity. Man, more important than anything else going on in your life is the fact that I've given you spiritual life this side of heaven. And and it should affect and color every aspect of your life. It puts everything else in perspective. You know, we saw that that video earlier of Robin and and her recent conversion to Christ. Let let me ask you a lead-in question. I don't mean to put Robin on the spot, but let's wrestle with this for a second. Do you think Robin still has problems in her life, yes or no? I'm guessing she does. I don't know that. I don't even know what those problems are. But, but I noticed all those teenagers in her house, and I thought, she's got problems. I just, I'm not making a judgment. I just think that would be a normal, natural thing. And, and, and so my guess is, is that if we interviewed Robin and said, hey, you know, before you became a Christian, you had these relational things and maybe whatever, all these issues, like, did all of them go away, Robin, the day you got saved? She would say, of course not. But did you hear her say that everything's different in her life right now? Everything is different. The joy is different, the way she approaches life. She wakes up every day, and there's something living in her in which now everything is different. What is that? That's a redemption identity. And you see, some of us, I think, have forgotten that. We've lost the joy of our salvation, haven't we? Happened so long ago, and maybe not a lot's happened since then, and you know, we come to church and do the church thing, but we've kind of lost the joy of our salvation. I'm telling you, getting back to your redemption identity is exactly what will give you that spark you need once again. How how do you do that? How do you get back to your redemption identity? Well, well, you you do two things. First, you got to realize once again what a wretch you are. You do. Again, if you honestly think that God had good reason to save you and that he's really proud of you and all the other things, then then you're probably not going to get in touch with your redemption identity. You got to realize again what he saved you from. And then as you do that, realize that he wants you to surrender each moment of each each day as you follow Jesus Christ. In in, uh, Romans 13, 14, it says, I like this wording, it says that you have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ each day. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? The NIV in that same passage says, clothe yourself with Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.3 says something similar when it says that you need to see your life as hidden in Jesus Christ. Why do New Testament authors use words like that? Why do they say you need to clothe yourself with Jesus and you need to be hidden in Jesus? I think it's because that's what keeps us having that redemption identity right buried deep within our souls. And it's all about absolute surrender, surrendering to his grace each moment of each day. And so you're starting to see, why do we follow Jesus? Because he brings us back to a creation identity that helps us realize how we view others around us and so many other things. 
He brings us back to a redemption identity that reminds us why we get up each day and what we've been saved for and the joy we have in our soul. And then this one's going to throw some of you with a third identity that Jesus can and will restore in your life if you follow him. And you know, it's sad, the church doesn't talk about this last identity very much, but we're going to talk about it right now, is that following Jesus Christ offers you a final and future identity. A final and future identity. Well, what am I talking about? Uh, look one last time at, at the scriptures. I know we've been all over the map here today, but, but we're kind of following the, the trend of the scriptures here, the pathway of the scriptures and this idea of following Jesus and identity. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 52, and then verse 57. If you don't have a Bible, look up here on the screen. This is very interesting. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Then verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So though that sounds complicated, dial into what he's saying there. Paul the Apostle is simply saying that there will come a time when Christ returns and there will only be two kinds of people, those who are dead and those who are alive. And out of those who are alive, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not gonna die when Christ returns, you're gonna be immediately changed. And then for those who are raised, who are followers of Christ, he says it again, you will be changed. Isn't that interesting? Paul the apostle makes clear that when Christ returns, or when the end of time comes, when our bodies stop and we go to be with him in eternity, we will be changed. And notice with me two things about that change. Is that first, is that it will be immediate. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And then secondly, it will be permanent. Because it uses that word imperishable, whenever change or fade. And so once you and I understand that, that there will come a time as followers of Jesus Christ that we will be completely, permanently, and immediately changed, then the question becomes, well, what kind of change are you talking about, God? Because I might be interested in that kind of change. And then you start looking at all of the New Testament and even parts of the Old, and it blows your mind. Let me just give you a quick sampling of some of the changes that are going to come to your identity when you either die or when Christ returns. The first one is, is that you will be 100% in the presence of Christ. First Thessalonians, Thessalonians 4 says you will be with the Lord forever. So 100% in the presence of Christ. So like now you don't feel him, guess what? There will come a day that you do. You'll feel him 24-7 all the time, just like when you're in the presence now of somebody that you know and love and when you're in their presence, like it's tangible, you're there. That's what it's going to be like with Christ. And then to add more meat to this, there'll be no more tears. It says that in Revelation 21.4. He's going to wipe away all your tears. So no emotional, physical, mental, or relational pain in heaven. You'll be complete and whole. And we know that because 1 Corinthians 15 says you're also going to have a new and perfect body. Isn't that interesting? A new body, a resurrected body. And so I've said for years, and this is good theology, no health clubs, no gyms, no diets, no doctors, no antibiotics, no MRI machines in heaven. 
I mean, think of all the things we do now to focus on our bodies, nada. None of it in eternity. None of it when you're with God. You have a new, complete, and perfect body. And then think about your mind. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, you're going to have full knowledge. All your questions will be answered. It says, then I shall know fully in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Let us go on. In 1 Corinthians 3, it says, you're going to have rewards for the things that you did here in the power of the Spirit. So as you faithfully follow Jesus, God's going to reward you in heaven. We don't know what that looks like, but we know that they are tangible. There's going to be rewards, as Paul the Apostle said. Now is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And then we also know God's going to speak profound words of affirmation and blessing for those that followed him. Matthew 25, verse 21 says, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, I love it when people ask me, is heaven boring? I sit there and go, what are you, a heretic? How can you even think that question? Is heaven boring? Every description that we have of what our future and final identity is going to be like makes what we have here look like child's play compared to the graduate program of heaven. I mean, the reality is when we're with him, we're going to want for nothing. We're going to be totally in the presence of God. And again, I know how some of you think. You think, oh, Jamie, okay, Jamie, I get the creation identity. I get the redemption identity. But this thing's so esoteric. It's way in the future, but maybe not. But it is in the future. And, and, and you sit there and think, so what am I to do with this? Wow. The, que- the answer to that question is so easy. Now listen, long for it. Anticipate it. Wait for it but wait with just a bit of anxiousness, good anxiousness in your soul. See, again, I think one of the things that holds so many Christians back today in their identity is that we are just so earthbound, aren't we? Think of all the things that you're obsessed with. Your 401k, the economy, politics, your marriage, your kids, all good things. All what C.S. Lewis calls second place things. None of those are first place things. God wants your soul consumed with first place things. And the reality is, is that you get maybe 80, 90, if you're lucky, years on this earth. You know how long eternity is? Forever. That's why Isaiah says that that when it comes to human beings, we're like blades of grass. Here today and gone tomorrow. That compared to eternity, we're going to look back on this time and go, that was nothing. Eternity with God is what we were made for. Long for it. Anticipate it. See what that does to your identity in Christ. So it was a couple nights ago, and I was putting the finishing touches on my message for you, and I got to this point, and I thought, well, what was the initial question I asked? Oh, yeah, why follow Jesus? You know what I thought to myself at this point? I thought, after all this, why not? Amen? Amen. Why not? Who in their right mind, if and when God offers them a renewed creation identity, a redemption identity that gives them a reason to live every day, and then a future final identity to look long for, who in their right mind would not want that? But you do have to follow. He has said these things are reserved for those who deny themselves, take up their cross daily, don't want to save their life, don't mind losing it for my sake, and follow. You know, I've been 
done my Christmas message for tomorrow night yet. I usually save that for the 24th, but I'm pretty sure I know what I'm going to talk about. I won't give you the whole thing right now because I got 15 minutes and I don't have that left. But I think where I'm going to go tomorrow night is going to be basically to talk about gift giving. And you know how sometimes somebody doesn't give you a gift and they say, yeah, but I've given you the gift of myself and how stupid that is when they do that. <laughs> I tried that in our first, my, my first Christmas with Kim and it doesn't work. You know, you, you better have a gift. But you know what's funny? Is that God says, actually, I would just love the gift of yourself. I would love you to wrap yourself, all of you, put it under the foot of the cross. And that's the only gift I really want from you. He wants you to follow. And I hope today that you're following him. We're going to enter into our time of elder fund offering here in a minute where we take up a special offering to give to those in need. What a great, great Sunday to do that in. As we head into that right now, why don't you bow with me and let's pray to the Lord. Father, I thank you for the clear call of your scriptures, the clear call of your son Jesus, that as he came into this world and then was resurrected on the third day and then ascended into heaven, said, follow me. And Father, I thank you that you're much less concerned with half-hearted belief than you are with wholehearted following. And that God, as we follow and trust you each moment of each day, you are then willing, more than willing, to forge into us the kind of identity we need to live life. Father, if I don't miss my guess, there's not one of us here today, not one of us, even if we're a seeker here today that would not want a renewed creation identity, a redemption identity that can tackle each day with faith and even along for a future full identity that we know we're going to receive in eternity. And Father, I pray that for those of us who have been following you, that today would just be a continued attaboy, a call to follow you with everything in us, to put ourselves under that tree this Christmas and mark it to God. I pray, God, that we would do that. And Lord, if there's somebody here today that's been seeking you like Robin had been and maybe today is the day that they understand what you require and want from them and they joyfully want to do it, right where they sit, they place their faith and trust in you and certainly in your son, Jesus Christ. They recognize their need for forgiveness, for redemption, and they mark today the day they came to believe and trust in you. God, thank you for this season. Thank you that you allow us, even in this secular culture of ours, to, to have a season that we carve out in the busy of our, busyness of our lives to focus on Jesus Christ. May we do that all year round, every day. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.